think about the vision casting that someone does going into like launching a membership site. Like they've got that original or initial impetus, like I'm going to pursue my passion. I'm going to make some money here. I'm going to launch this. My friends are going to know about it. They're going to tell their friends. Like you literally start vision casting. And a lot of this is healthy if you're the type of person that wants to go and grab it and reach that desired end goal. But you cannot know what's going to happen when you really get in there and you do it and then you launch it. There's going to be change and your ability to embrace that change. This is really important. You're listening to Ali Jafari and my special guest on today's episode of the Subscription Entrepreneur Podcast. If you're an avid listener of our show, you know that Ali was one of my very first guests back in 2018. In that episode, we talked about everything online entrepreneurs need to know before starting their membership sites. But here's the thing. Starting your membership site is really only half the battle. And truth be told, it might be the easier half. Once you've launched your site, you now face the task of actually finding the people who want to be a part of your community and pay for your content. That's why today, Ali comes back on the show to complete the picture. We have an in-depth discussion about what to do in the days, weeks, and months that come after your launch. Over the past seven years, Ali has helped hundreds of online entrepreneurs build, launch, and grow their membership sites. And in this episode, he reveals the exact systems and strategies he uses to help his clients successfully navigate the post-launch stage and build an online business that lasts. So if you're wondering what to do after you launch your site, this episode is for you. And as always, I'm your host, Eric Turnison, and this is episode 154 of the Subscription Entrepreneur Podcast. Welcome to the show, Ali. Hello, Eric. Good to be back. Yes, good to be back. As we were leading up to this, having this conversation, I was thinking back to the time that I visited you out in Denver. Did you know the backstory? I think I told you like what happened the night before that I met up with you about how I got that Airbnb that was like a 420 friendly house, but I ended up having to bust out of there late at night and go like sleep in the woods or something. Indeed, I do remember. People are going to want to know that story now. <laughs> Let's say, should we talk about that? Like that could be a podcast episode. <laughs> anyway, it was an ordeal, but it ended up really well. I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but the Airbnb was not good. It smelled like weed. Obviously, I don't smoke weed, so it was a big issue for me. And I ended up driving around that night, but I ended up landing in this beautiful parking lot on a lake in Evergreen, Washington. And I slept in my car with my dog and it was amazing. Coincidentally, my wife and her family who's visiting with us right now and my children just hiked that lake a couple hours ago. So it's kind of a sweet spot for us here in Denver. Full circle. Speaking of full circle, you've been on the show before. In fact, you were one of our very first guests on the podcast. And the last time you were here, we talked about everything someone needs to know before they create a membership site. And today, what we're going to go and talk about is everything that comes after that. You know, the stuff that actually goes into building a successful business online. So before we get into that, let's just do a very brief introduction of who you are so people get an understanding of that. Sure. I'm a father, a husband, an entrepreneur. I spend a lot of my time on member dev and a couple other businesses and we at MemberDev allow entrepreneurs to launch membership sites. We work very closely with your company and doing everything from start to finish in a sort of productized service workflow. And that comes from years of doing deeper agency work where we would do complex builds for a variety of e-commerce membership needs. So, Now, if we were doing this correctly, and I don't know if it's our production budget, but I'm envisioning the opening to the Star Wars episodes where like, this is episode two and it has that scrolling text at the beginning with the Star Wars fanfare. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> it's like last time we spoke, yes. we left the empire. We had built a membership site. <laughs> and now, okay, so what comes after launching the membership site? After you finish the time and labor intensive stage of actually building and launching the site, I think it's easy to fall into a sort of a trap in thinking that your work is quote unquote done. You've built it and now they just have to come, right? You got it. Yeah. So going into what comes next, right? So the way we look at it is that when you launch it, now it's business time. And in some ways, MemberDev and other tools or companies that assist in the building or the technical side of membership sites are crutches. And they can be useful crutches, so not in a negative connotation, but it's more that we're helping you do that faster. We're accelerating it. A lot of our platform and process offering is very coached in guidance in the manner that we're done for you, right? We're helping you do it. And that's just to accelerate the technical piece. So you don't have to do it yourself. But once it's done, once it's ready, once it's launched, now you have to work, right? It's like regardless of, because we don't typically engage, we have some method of engagement post-launch, but most of our work and our platform is designed for the build, the planning, the build phase. So it's time to launch right after that. We're dealing with sales, marketing. These are the two core suite spots. The site is there. The doors have opened. Now, how do we get traffic? How do we get people in? How do we get customers? And this just catapults a whole slew of things. Yeah, it's like the metaphorical lemonade stand that we start as children. You know, getting the lemonade stand set up is only the first step. Now, how are you going to get people in the door? How are you going to handle your transactions? How are you going to get the word out? And actually, I use the MemberDev platform on my learngongfutee.com site where I have an online course teaching people how to brew tea. And I'm a technical person, right? So I have spent a lot of time in my career focusing on those technical aspects. And so for me, one of the biggest challenges is I can get caught up in a lot of things about the technical aspects. And then once I get it launched... I may struggle with some of the steps that I do next. Is that a common thing? Absolutely. Yep. And it's really interesting because we've done this so many times and we get to see people and their different personas, their different types. Like you said, technical versus non-technical versus introverts versus extroverts. And what rises is that there's specific demographics that are actually excited for this. And those are the people that have backgrounds in marketing, online marketers, digital marketers, people who have a background in sale, because you can imagine they've been waiting. They're like, hey, I'm ready to sell. I'm ready to market. I'm ready to get this thing out and start driving growth. And so the second they go live, it's almost like, give me the keys. You guys are good. I'll holler at you later. Whereas the technical folks like us, I happen to be more of the introvert technical persona. We enjoy that phase. And so Again, and what we've sensed is that when we get to that phase, we're like, oh, shoot, now I got to do all this. It's just not necessarily the most fun or even interesting for people who enjoy the technical side. So that's been a really interesting observance in that some people are anxious and others are like, oh, and it catches them off guard. They're like, oh, I thought that when this was ready, things would just start coming. Well, that's, in my mind, the distinction between the technical and the non-technical. People are comfortable with the technical side and people who are comfortable with more of the sales and marketing is, it's a very different thing. Like with the technical side of things, it's like an input-output model. If you put a certain thing in, you know exactly what you're going to get out. And if there's a problem, it's very clear on how to fix the problem. Whereas it's a totally different nut to crack once you have your site live because now it's there's more of a human element to it. You have to 
put something out there, you have to assess how people respond to it and then make adjustments based on that. Totally, man. And there's a sense of overwhelmment, right? That can either hit you if you're not prepared or it will, like going back to excitement, you're like, okay, I'm ready for this. So it is almost an A or B. It's very rarely we get someone in the middle that either grab it by the horns and go or they don't and they fall back. Right. Now, I think one of the things that was very appreciated in the first podcast episode we did is you have a very good way of laying things out in terms of like a checklist of what things should be done and when. And so let's do that for this after launch scenario. So in your experience working with dozens and dozens of successful membership and subscription entrepreneurs, let's talk about what does the successful navigation of the after launch phase look like? Sure. Great question. So the first, which should be hopefully obvious is a plan, right? So it's up now. You want to have some method, usually a six to 12 month plan. We always encourage people to have a 12 month plan. Sometimes we'll give them a template for that and just explain even at the highest level, like, Hey, you've got these stages to go through. Now there's the brand new, got to get those first few users and customers in the door. Then there's the slow growth, like listening to feedback. And then there's acceleration where it's like, Hey, we've got money coming in. We've got traction. Well, how do we get to the next level? So planning is essential. And then doing some self-awareness on yourself and your team and saying like, where are we strong? So in other words, if we're a team that can crank out content and we've got some engineering chops, then let's do that. Let's work on the product. Let's stay focused and let's outsource the things we're not good at, which was to be marketing or sales even. Where on the contrary, some people are like, I'm really good at sales and marketing. That's my zone of genius. That's where I want to stay, then go do that and go find a developer or a team or someone to assist in the things related to the product and engineering side. The other couple notes are staying really close to customers in that early initial post-launch, like watch what they do on your site, use some of the tools that help you gauge like where they're spending their time and energy, get feedback and do it in a personalized way, right? Not to go full steam and say, Hey, we got to get all these different tools and automate everything, like actually have a dialogue and reach out to people say, Hey, I appreciate you signing up. I would love to get some early feedback. What could we do better? What would you like to see in the coming months? And then the last and most important point is consistency. So I can't tell you how many people just uh, the first month or two, they just go out of the gate and then they just die for whatever reason. Whereas like, and this is not just for membership sites. This is just a general business rule that I've learned and continue to share with everyone that I work with is like consistency will always pay off. Like in some way or form, if you stay the course and you put out an ongoing and even extraordinary effort, you will see results. Now, when you were talking about the six to 12 month plan, you kind of indicated that there were kind of these loosely defined phases of, okay, you're just early on getting your trickle of customers and then you have something beyond that. Can you just quickly tell me what those phases were again? Yeah. And I actually wrote a blog resource about this, which we can throw in the show notes, but to spitball, and this could be interpreted different ways, but the easiest way to kind of segment them is that there's the early adoption, right? So just getting people to use it. And sometimes the mechanism there is giving it away for free, right? Just get some people in, get some usage out of it. Then there's like the early sales phase. So it's like, okay, we've got some sales, some revenue coming in low thousands a month. 1000 2000 maybe up to about $5,000 a month. We're like, money's coming in. It's proven that people want this and it's valuable, but it's not full-blown where it's like, okay, I can build a team and build all these processes out, right? 
Okay, before we get to the third stage, let's talk about the differences between those two stages. Because really, I think a lot of people, that's a big graveyard right there, right? Like getting from early adoption to the $3,000 to $5,000 a month mark. So what are some of the best ways that you've seen that people can make it to that point where they're actually getting a consistent monthly revenue in their business? Well, I think this goes back to one of the mechanisms goes back to the point we just touched on, which is if you're close enough to these customers, not in a personal way. So again, having a direct email, even spending time with them on the phone or Zoom, you're going to get out of them what they want to pay for, right? And that can guide you. And you'll remember these early customers, right? You'll know them by name. (laughs) They'll come up in stories and they'll help you shape where the true value is because We all have plans and we all have elaborate pricing strategies, but none of that matters until someone checks out and you get the notification that money just hit the bank. And these early users, early adopters, early customers are the ones who truly validate that whatever it is that you've decided to launch is worth paying for. So that's my best suggestion is that just stay close and then you'll have this small tribe of early customers and they'll get you into those low thousands a month. And then you have a different set of decisions to navigate. That's pretty clear. Okay, so now how do we increase, once we get adept at having the conversation with our early customers and making adjustments based on that, what are the types of things that we should be looking at early on in terms of increasing the flow of people coming to us? So you reverse engineer it. You say, where did you guys come from? You guys and gals. How'd you get here? How'd you hear about it? You learn that and then you go do more of that, right? And you do more of that until it doesn't work anymore. So for example, let's say Instagram. Let's say you've built up a following. You've got a few hundred people catching your stuff. You're like, oh, wow, five people that came here are people who followed me and commented on some stuff that I've Instagrammed, right? So it's very clear now, like, oh, whatever I'm doing there has been working. So I'm either going to exponentially increase that organically, or I'm going to tap into Facebook ads so that I can get in front of more people like that on Instagram. That's the surefire way because it's low risk and it's proven. You've got the data to back that that worked. Now, I think another thing to talk about is hurdles we throw in our own way. Because I think a lot of times we don't reach a goal that we're shooting for because of something we're tripping ourselves up. And I think something that's very near and dear to your heart is the power and necessity of simplicity. Now, From your own experience as an entrepreneur and your direct experience working with clients, why is that you stress the importance of simplicity when it comes to building an online business? Sure. Yeah, this is a topic that I continue to be a student of, and it slaps me in the face over and over again because I, again, being a technician at heart, I'm wired to make it more complex. I think further. I say, oh, well, what about the future? And that's the exact example of what you don't want to do. And so, The reason that it's dangerous is that with the word complexity, especially related to online software businesses, hits everyone involved. So it hits you as the owner of the business, you know, the person running things. It hits your team in terms of other people who are contributing to the business and all the different efforts, and it hits your customer. So for example, a very simple product or a very simple membership site is easy for me to create and vision. It's easy for my team to get behind and it's easy for the customer to sign up for. On the contrary, a more complex offer or a more complex membership site is the exact opposite. It's harder, takes longer. There's more scope to work against, to build it and deploy it. 
which hits my team and then inevitably hits the customer because now it's more complex to explain and to describe and to ultimately sell. That's it. The word in itself always introduces more. That's what it's synonymous. Complex is synonymous with more. And you'll generally find when you've done that enough times that what you really want is less. (laughs) Right. And I know me working with you has been good because you've protected me from this. Like I'll get into that mindset. I'll be like, hey, Ali, like, I know we were supposed to launch like yesterday, but let's just add these right, two more things. Right. And you're like, no. Yeah. Yeah. Well, now I am, right? I didn't <laughs> yeah, used to be. Now you are, I used yeah. to be like, Eric, that's a great yeah. idea. We should do this, this, and this. And we'd feed off of each other, right? And that's what you usually do until you sit back and realize that you want less. It actually goes deeper into like Zen and Buddhist ideals, which is a whole other topic, but it's very relevant to this conversation is that if you introduce complexity, you're just introducing more and most people will feed off that and they'll fuel your fire to do it. Whereas it takes a lot of discipline to say, no, 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 we don't need that. Let's just keep it like this. Right. And following up on that, I mean, something I've heard you say before is get complex when you need it. And so I think there is a time when it's appropriate to start adding complexity, but can you elaborate more on that? Yeah, absolutely. And the simplest way that this is easy to say in a statement, and then I'll build upon it, is that for anyone, membership site owner or retail shop owner, the business should tell you when you need complexity. So the business should tell you when you need more. And the easiest way, going back to one of our earlier topics, is like the customers will validate that, right? So if you're like, if your business is really simple and it's done well, but you're kind of at a roadblock, then generally the customers will say, hey, there's this other thing we want and we're ready to pay for it. And it's even better if you can get them to pay for it before you do it, right? Because now it's validated and the complexity that comes is backed by proof, right? So it's like, okay, there's customer demand, there's more sales and revenue behind this, so we should go do it. The other thing which you'll see, especially if your membership site has features and has some technical components is that, you will hit bottleneck. And this is how we've worked with a lot of people in the past that have come to us and say, hey, I had this really simple thing. It was going really well, but we need to get to level two now as opposed to staying on level one. And to do that, we know we need these specific things done that have to be engineered. This is another example of when the business is telling you. So you're not making the assumption. You're literally hindered. Your growth, your sales, some aspect of getting more for the strategy is hindered by a technical component. And then the other piece of this is being diligent about having some type of financial model. So it's so easy to just assume that you need more or the like symptoms of the business are like kind of nagging and saying, oh, you should do this, this. But we always encourage people like put it on paper and technical terms, that's a spreadsheet, like show what would happen if you did this. So we add this new feature at X number of customers, if we bump them or offer them this additional thing, what would that look like financially? And that way you have some logic, some method to the madness on why you would do that and what the return is. Because otherwise it's gut instinct, which can be helpful, but is not going to be concrete. Gut instinct and potentially pet project. You got it. Oh yeah, absolutely. Pet project. And then testing. So you hear this a lot today in all facets of business is like, if you can test something, and you can experiment, go do that first. And it's not always easy, especially when you're talking about technology, because you fall into the trap of like, how much time is this going to take? How much is it going to cost? But if there's a simple way to test something that introduces complexity, always test that first before just buying in and committing to it. 
Got it. So yeah, and that makes a lot of sense. And now that we've kind of talked about when it makes sense to kind of get into quote unquote complexity, I mean, it's part of what's showing up here is that you need to have a certain level of awareness where you are on that spectrum of simple versus complex. So how can people perceive this in themselves if they're doing this? What are some of the pitfalls that entrepreneurs who can get tempted by the siren's call of complexity? And how can this completely derail somebody's momentum and potential success? Oh, you just go down the wrong path. It's like the carrot or the magnet to say, hey, you should do this is very easy to fall into for all the different reasons, right? You got customers asking about this. You've got some assumptions over here. You've got competitor pressure, like, oh, they're doing this. But how we distill that and say, put your guardrails up is we have this simple, what we call a CRT framework. It's a nice diagram, which we can add to the show notes. And the CRT stands for a three-circle diagram, customer experience, revenue, and time savings. And so you can imagine there's these three circles that all meet and it has a relationship where if something falls into one of these circles, then it's making an argument for complexity. So for example, this specific thing would be so much better for our customers. Great. There's some validation there. This other specific thing would be really good for revenue. And then the third circle is time saving. So this specific thing would save us as a team a lot of time. Now, if it falls into one of those, like I said, it validates consideration. If it falls into two of those, you should probably do that because you're killing two birds with one stone. If it falls into three, the dead center, it's a no-brainer. And the likelihood, though, of something falling into that third doesn't happen very much, especially as you scale. Like in the beginning, you will find things like, oh, this new feature would be good for customers. It could save us a lot of time, and it's actually going to give us some exponential revenue growth. But as you grow, that tends to happen less. And then you get hit with these decisions of how do we do this? Which items do we go after? And our guidance there is that where is the pain point? So for example, if cash is tight, then go do the things that drive revenue. If customer support is at all time high, then you're like, we should probably invest in things that are going to make our customers happy. And then the same thing with the time savings is that if you find your team just overworked and exhausted, then it's like, hey, we got to automate some things or do some stuff around the business that are going to really take some work off of our team's plate. And I want to reference something that you talked about earlier about going to the customers, asking them questions, seeing what they're looking for. Because you referenced in that, that sometimes customers can be the thing that might introduce complexity and sometimes they might be the thing that can decrease complexity or bring simplicity to the situation. And so I think specifically, I've run into the situation with uh, MemberMouse and a software product that I get into the early in the years, I got into too much of the people-pleasing thing and thinking I needed to deliver more than was actually there. And so I would constantly have our development resources implement new things that were kind of things that people were asking for and I felt we needed to do to please the market. But turns out a lot of those things didn't need to be done. So I feel like an important part, especially with that dynamic, is learning to set boundaries. And even what we referenced earlier and how our relationship has developed you, when we work together, you used to just say, oh yeah, that's a great idea. Let's do it. And now you have a more holistic vision of, okay, we said that we wanted to get on this date. This is the budget from time and resources perspective. So therefore it doesn't fit right now to do that. Yeah, this is great. Well, let's spend some time here. So 
What's interesting, what I've sort of observed is that early in your career, you think you need to do more. And that's just how you're wired. Just like you said, and I did the exact same thing. I would always get caught as a consultant and then building my own businesses, like just doing so many things and then having these full featured products and experiences that could do everything. And I actually learned a little bit about this on a different podcast recently where a lot of that underlying psychology comes from guilt. In other words, as creators, we feel guilt if we're not pleasing people, back to your point. And this is psychology, right? We don't know better. And we're not disciplined enough at that stage, in the early stage, to say, nope, nope, this is okay. I can ignore that. And then as you move along, how some people do this is they like to use data as they start to mature. And for example, let's say we've got a spreadsheet or a a place where we gather feedback. And if something gets asked enough times, we commit to it, right? That's a system in itself. And it's a logical way to say, we're listening to you and you are the majority vote. So we're going to do this because we feel like that validates the need. But as you move even further and further, and I'm not at the end yet, but I'm at a place now where I'm like, I'm generally going to keep saying no until it feels like the only option is to say yes, right? And so that's just a disciplinary thing and a mindset shift in running businesses, even in life, and to say, it, just keep it simple. And again, going back to all of our previous points, it yields a lot of return if you buy into this. But you can only do that after going the complex route and letting all the other things consume you enough because then you've learned. You're like, okay, I don't want that anymore and this is a better path. Right. And keeping it simple also directly ties to speed to market and speed to customer feedback. Like you were saying, again, how early on it's really important to get the feedback of those early adopters because any pain points or things that they like you hear that and you will adapt the product or the service based on that. The longer you wait to get something out in front of those people because you're making it more complex, the more you're actually pushing off the feedback that's going to help you go to the further stages. So let's talk about content versus product businesses. In your work with online entrepreneurs, you've said that most people are creating either a content-based business or a product-based business. And for our listeners, a content-based business would be something like an education site that teaches people how to play the guitar. And the other approach is to create a product-based business. And this could be anything from selling physical products or a piece of software. However, you've mentioned that a lot of people come to you with an idea for both, For example, someone who wants to provide online guitar education, but also wants to create an app for their users. And this person would then be building both a content and a product-based business at the same time. Now, you strongly advise against this, and why is that? Yep. So this goes right back to complexity. At the forefront, there's just more to do here. And it's almost like a first-time entrepreneur saying, I'm going to go do three businesses at once instead of getting their feet wet and learning something about a certain industry or niche and then expanding upon it. And almost anyone in business will tell you to do that, to start somewhere and then grow. Whereas it's very natural, again, especially in the earlier phase, to get that guilt and be like, no, 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 no. I got to have the guitar training. It's got to have an app for progress tracking. It's got to have this. It's got to have forums where people can talk about it, right? Like Because you start vision casting, and again, the guilt sets in that you're not going to be good enough. So again, in terms of the guidance and the coaching, it's like, just start with one or the other. And a lot of times your 
persona and your strengths will lead you into what you're going to do. So you're either more inclined to create the training, the content and start there and grow it and then optimize it or vice versa. You're an introvert. You want to build something, you want people to use it. And then in due time, you may find that you could complement that with content and other things that support the product. So if somebody starts with the content-based business or a product-based business based on their personal strengths, when would it be time to actually consider adding the other component to the business? Exactly. So this is the trickier part to navigate. And to give you some examples, usually there's going to be strong demand from one side or the other. So let's go back to the guitar example. If you've got this awesome library of training, just full with courses and lessons, and most of this is video, so content you can consume, you're either going to hear from your customers, your members like, hey, we need more. We need a better way to track this or we're looking for this thing to give us an edge. And again, they'll basically tell you what they want or vice versa to flip the script. You've got this really awesome software and like you've kind of squeezed and optimized a lot and your team's like, eh, we're not really moving the needle in terms of MRR, monthly revenue, recurring revenue, not really growing on target. But we've got all these voices from customers saying like, hey, we don't know how to use this or we need better onboarding or we need these tools that involve content, training, et cetera. And especially if they're willing to pay for that. So again, sticking to the theme here, the business will support and give you the demand for that. And this kind of segues into, well, what have we seen here? So what are examples of this? Because it's very common where we see people that want to do both. Now we're disciplined not to say no, because we had examples where we used to entertain that. And then you can imagine we're spending six to 12 months launching this massive content slash product membership type property. And then the business owners are just like paralyzed when it's done because like, holy cow, what do I do with this? It's complex. Like, how do I market this? How do I grow it, et cetera? Whereas on the contrary, one of our more successful clients who happens to do piano training as opposed to guitar, they are at a really good point now. They're proving out exactly what we're talking here where they're like, we've done the training, they've got the content, and now there's demand and validation to go build a side-by-side app that can give their customer base and even new customers a good tool to complement their content. That's great. Yeah. So many times you want to make sure you're listening to the business to tell you when it's the right time to do something. And this kind of leads to another kind of complementary topic, and it's about automating things in business. It's complementary because automation always sounds like a good idea, but in and of itself, from an implementation perspective, it brings complexity. So if you want to automate something, it requires effort to implement that, which may be, in fact, fall into one of those categories and pitfalls we talked about earlier, which could push out your launch, push out your timelines, not yield enough in revenue, not be satisfying to your customers, may just be a pet project and a good idea, but not actually feed the business in any way. So from your perspective, how do you decide what to automate and when? Yeah, this is a great question. And I'm extremely humble enough to know that I don't have all the answers here. In fact, I've had to navigate a lot of this in the last 12 to 18 months on a few key projects. And it's interesting because we're in a tech software ecosystem where you can automate almost anything. And we're at the disposal of tools like Zapier, which don't require an engineer, right? So that they're designed for non-technical folks to create automations. And then you have traditional automation, which is software engineering. So writing code that 
does something that humans previously did, and it does it in a more efficient way. Now, deciding what, when, how to automate, a lot of this goes back to the CRT framework. At least that's how we look at it. It's like, okay, if the time-saving circle is on fire, just like, man, we are just sunk into these things, then it's pretty clear that you want to- On fire in a bad way? Exactly, sorry. In the red zone, yeah, bad fire. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for clarifying. Your house is burning down. (laughs) Totally, totally. And so that's when it's screaming. It's like, it's time to automate. The other thing that is- sort of a byproduct of automating for that circle is that you actually, especially if you're in a team environment, you boost morale. Because when you've got a specific task or set of tasks that your team's doing, and it's both monotonous and it is time consuming, freeing that up, it's like a burden's lifted. Like, yes, I don't have to do that anymore. So there's a little party excitement when that is relieved. So if it also is the type of automation which happens to affect sales and revenue or the customer experience, then it's totally a win-win. And so a lot of times how we've looked at this and evaluated is that if something is super time-consuming and it's also kind of bad for morale, meaning that it's not an enjoyable thing to do, that's an indication that it's time to automate. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's talk about from your experience that you've seen automations versus a job being done by a human. Are there things that you can categorically say, you know, you can never say anything 100%, but over the course of working with a lot of clients, are there things that you can say happen most of the time where these things should absolutely be automated from day one and these things should absolutely be done by a person? Yeah, absolutely. So... Some of the things that most of us are accustomed to or that you should automate are things that are the expectation around a modern experience and specific to membership sites like getting confirmation of a purchase, right? Or even purchasing. Like there's enough tools now, including Member Mouse, to make online transactions simple, right? Don't go figure that out and don't go write code or hire a developer to build a custom payment solution unless you absolutely have to. And there should be a really, really strong argument for that. Otherwise, things like online payments, email, right? In terms of sending campaigns and then automating some of the new user onboarding and welcome series, these types of things should probably be automated from day one, hands down. So the other key thing to recognize here and be aware of is that even though some of these things are default check, like, yep, got to automate that, got to automate that, you also want to keep an eye on some of this stuff. And in other words, still keep a human either in control or managing the automation before you just let it go and cruise control. And so what I mean by that is like even using tools like MemoMouse and Stripe, where they interact really nicely to save you time on all the payment side of an online business, having alerts or having someone check weekly or monthly, like are things running? Because sometimes errors happen. I've seen this. I see this all the time. So it's good to know that even though you're automating some of these trivial things, you still kind of want a human to check in on them, especially if they touch critical aspects of the business like revenue. Right. That makes sense. Okay. We got through it. We had an outline and we did it. Just so people know, like, I think people who have been listening to podcasts, they know, like, I vary in and out, going in and out, doing outlines. But specifically with this conversation, it's a little bit harder work for me to go with an outline because you and I naturally talk and have dialogues all the time. And we can talk for three hours about really engaging and interesting things to us. 
But the reason we stuck with an outline is because we wanted to give people this clear picture and stay on track and do it. So we did it. That's done. Hopefully people found that helpful. But now let's talk about something else. You've been doing work with a platform now that you've built. And this is in contrast to you used to do a lot of one-on-one client work, building sites essentially from scratch for your clients. And now you're moving more into this platform area. How is that experience different for you as a business owner? And what challenges you're facing? What things are you excited about going into with this project? Yeah, no, this is good. This is the good stuff. And I'll just spitball. What we're doing to reiterate for people so they have proper context is, as Eric said, we're going from a history of very complicated, expensive, long project cycles and requirements to more streamlined, proven, systematized platform type projects. And obviously, this naturally touches on some of the stuff we just discussed. So we're throwing away complexity and we're trading it for simplicity. With that, though, it also speaks to the automation piece and like looking at how we spend our time. But with that, it's actually interesting. There's a whole new set of challenges. And there's some rewiring, especially for me, after being in the complex world for many years, to embrace the simplification and then embrace systems. And so this is a point that I think a lot of the entrepreneurs listening are going to start nodding, like, yep. I'm either there or I'm about to get there or I'm past that and I've mastered that. But you get to a point where you want the clarity and you're ready to systematize something, to make it repeatable, to make it proven, and then to run through the motions. And so it's a whole different game. It's a whole different challenge. There's pros and cons of each. But you imagine you're going from the custom home builder to building factories that all look the same, right? And so a factory is simple. A custom home is not. A factory can be stood up and done by the same team over and over again. And a custom home, generally, you you might pull in different people for their respective skills. So it's been a paradigm shift. There's a part of me that still misses the complexity. And we actually still do occasionally take on something. Well, I think another good word for that is there's more creativity, too. There's more opportunity for creativity. And this journey you're talking about, I mean, even though you're doing it with software, This is a common story. People are trading time for money, being consultants, and they get burnout on it. And then they want to help a larger audience because you can only help one person at a time or X number of people at a time. And then they want to create a business that's more scalable and a more content-based business. And these trade-offs have to happen. If you want to teach something to somebody or help somebody with something at scale, you have to naturally fade out some of the flexibility that you get when you're dealing with somebody one-on-one. And that's challenging to do, to figure out that balance. Well said. You're spot on, Eric. And a lot of what it comes down to, like sometimes there's the human or the entrepreneurial desire to say, well, I've been convinced or I'm confident that this simpler, repeatable path is more lucrative or more sane, whatever. But then there's the piece you just touched on, which is the impact side. And This is the motion that becomes pretty obvious that, like you said, to reach people at scale and to make a bigger impact, you have to create something that is more systematized, more repeatable. I'm reading a specific book now that's using Ray Kroc and McDonald's as the example. And while many people, especially educated people, might look at McDonald's for its flaws and especially like the quality of the food, what he did was actually very impressive because he was one of the first entrepreneurs to truly franchise and franchise at scale. And many people have copied him since. So while McDonald's is known for burgers, 
in the business world, people recognize and appreciate McDonald's for being the most successful model of a proven, because it is a simple business. It's actually not a complex business. You know, you have a few things on the item. You can plug anyone into the business virtually to do most of these jobs. And instead of focusing on, oh, well, the negative side of that, you focus on the positive, like, wow, this is such a proven system. And believe me, it makes impact. There's some staggering fact that at one point, I forget the percentage, but a percentage of the food consumed in the world, like McDonald's had a little chunk of that, which is crazy. Given the number of clients you're working with and kind of sticking with the theme of this episode, which is talking about what happens after launch, where do you find that you're coaching the clients that you get up and running the most? What are some of the things that you feel would be most helpful to people listening who find themselves in this situation? Sure. Yeah. A fantastic question. And we've actually sensed a lot more. Like you said, even though we've simplified our offering and really created a platform just to make it more digestible and repeatable, there's a coaching element to this with almost everyone. Some people are at a higher acumen. Some people are just getting started. But regardless, they're leaning on us and we're happy to give it like some guidance on, like you said, checklists, templates, playbooks, so that it can be done in a better, more effective way that we've essentially proved out. And I'm going to go back to some things we talked about because these are really important. And I want to make sure these stick with people is that the consistency is huge. And this isn't just for membership sites or, or businesses is for life. Like if you're not consistent, then you're neglecting one of the most important attributes of reaching a goal or progression. It doesn't even have to be about a target. It's about just progression. Micro habits. So there's been some really awesome research lately from James Clear and other people in the industry talking about the importance of habits and consistency plays right into that. So like we are creatures of habits and a lot of the stuff we do, 95% or more is done subconsciously, like waking up, brushing our teeth, eating breakfast, getting ready. Whereas it's the conscious decisions we make that really drive patterns in business growth and progression. So I would say that if there's anything, and I try to get a pulse on this early on in the conversations with our customers, just say like, are you going to be consistent and can you be held accountable? And so one of the new things we're experimenting with ourselves right now are schedules. So just like if you were to take college course curriculum, you got to show up, you got to take exams on certain days, and then you eventually have a grade that determines if you've consumed this and passed. And so we're doing something similar, at least testing it right now. Like from the start, we're mapping out a schedule. We're predefining these meeting dates when we're checking in and reviewing things. We're doing training calls. And then we're mapping when the target launch date is. Because above all things, a schedule and keeping people accountable is one of the biggest obstacles from both our old world of doing really complicated projects and even our new world of doing simple projects. For some reason, humans don't like sticking to these schedules. So that's an example of where we're spending some energy and where I would advise people like stay consistent and find a way to be accountable. And those two things will give you so much value in the long run. It's good advice. Yeah. I mean, it made me think about what you're talking about consistency, a metaphor that has never occurred to me is that if you say want to have a goal of surviving, you eat food with a certain frequency. You don't eat it like haphazardly, like, oh, once a month or whatever. So consistency is all about feeding the thing that you want to survive. 
So consistency is great. And it also has to be paired with an understanding of what you're trying to accomplish. Because obviously, if you eat consistently, but you eat the wrong stuff, then you may not reach the goal that you're looking for. You'll end up reaching a goal. Like consistent habit will lead to a goal and accomplishment. But if you're not necessarily clear about how it feeds it, then the goal that you reach may not be the one that you thought you were going for. Absolutely. Yeah. So feeding the consistency, being open and persuadable. So this is something new that's been on my radar recently from one of my business partners is like staying with a growth mindset, which means you're open to learning almost always. And then being persuadable, not in a sense where like you could be sold, but where you could change your mind. I think this is really important for people who launch membership sites, especially for the first time, because it's one thing, like you said, to be consistent and kind of have a plan. You should do that. But then it's also equally important to say, hey, the plan could shift. I know this saying has been butchered everywhere. It's been used so many times, but I love it. It's the Mike Tyson quote, everyone has a plan until you get punched in the mouth. That's so true, especially with these sites, because you can imagine like, think about the vision casting that someone does going into like launching a membership site. Like they've got that original or initial impetus, like I'm going to pursue my passion. I'm going to make some money here. I'm going to launch this. My friends are going to know about, it. they're going to tell their friends. Like you literally start vision casting. And a lot of this is healthy if you're the type of person that wants to go and grab it and reach that desired end goal. But you cannot know what's going to happen when you really get in there and you do it and then you launch it. And so that's why I'm making this point for people to be aware of and to reflect on is that there's going to be change and your ability to embrace that change and use it in sort of a meaningful way or a way that you've learned from it instead of being like, oh, that's not what I planned and then being derailed. This is really important. And this goes into being really conscious about an open mindset, a growth mindset, and then being persuadable to say, hey, we could shift gears and go this way. I appreciate you sharing your kind of meta story about your business. Some things that I took away from that is like, we were talking about in the beginning for both of us, there was a sense of guilt about delivering certain features because we wanted people to like it. And then there was kind of a phase where it's just like, okay, I'm open to everybody and anybody who wants to use this. And now there comes to a phase where you're part of your business, where you are actually setting a lot more boundaries. You say, actually, you know what? I know what my value is. I've been doing this long enough. If you want to work with me, I can get you there. And I know that you need to commit to these things, right? Because I know if you don't commit to these things, then you're not going to succeed regardless of what I do. So it's a totally different mindset that you've come to. It is indeed. Thank you for recognizing that. So some of that is getting to a place where we want to spend our time and energy with people that we know are serious and are intentional about doing this. So there is a fairly selfish way there, but we see it as a better optimistic light where it's like, we're going to work with the people that want to work with us. And we do a good job of vetting that. And we have a new intake process, which was inspired by some of your feedback, where we get people to answer some questions up front. We get them to put a little work in, say, hey, here's my scope. Here's the things I need. So like, have them take the initiative to put some effort in. And then we come in and then we start creating value from the beginning and say, great, based on that, here's an estimated quote, but we're going to run through a demo with you. We're going to make sure you're clear on things. We're going to hold your hand and then kick this off with you. I thought you were going to say, we're going to hold your hand and then kick you out the door. (laughs) (laughs) You're on your own now. Yeah, that'd be an interesting business model. But (laughs) 
<laughs> but yeah, it's, I mean, like I said, I, I appreciate you recognizing that is that we have learned enough that we're able to narrow in basically the type of customers that we want to serve. And then it's a win-win again. And so there's a part of that where we have to elegantly discard or sort of reject people. And that's fine because not only would it be bad for us to pursue working with them, but it's bad for them as well. We know that at this point and they're better served somewhere else in finding someone that wants to do the thing they want to do. I would actually give you some praise as well on the Memorial side, because with the way that you've positioned your business and sort of evolved that Member Mouse is a good fit for specific customers. And there's some people that it's not a good fit for. And I know that you probably intentionally have started to message that more and you're reaching people who can really value it. Whereas like there's some tools that are just simpler and they're probably better for this specific demographic. But Member Mouse has a really, really valuable offering to specific people and is hence why we use it and why we've been using it for years. Thank you for that. And I recognize now that (laughs) part of the reason why that happens is because that's basically like my personality. And it's kind of like how I deal with people in my life now. It's basically like, it doesn't happen like this, but essentially like if I meet somebody, it's like, oh, I'm either a right fit for you or I'm not. Because I've come more into who I am at this point in my life. And so I know there's not as much guilt about me trying to be who I should be for everybody. It's more about recognizing this is who I am. And for those people who resonate with that, it's going to be great. And for those people who don't, we should just recognize right now, like, this is going to be bad if we try to do certain things. Yeah, you cut right in, which I admire. I actually have followed suit in many ways. One, I think because I'm an int J, one of these aptitude tests. And so there's a side of me and I know that we have introvertal tendencies, but think about the best way I've heard it described is warm candor. Like just telling someone, be like, look, we just don't have that much in common. So we shouldn't continue this. And, you know, this goes into the dating world for people that are in that world. But what I think about as you talk about this type, I'm like, imagine if everyone did this, like we'd be a really efficient culture and society, but so much time is wasted on the opposite end where people just let a conversation drag on or just hang out with this group out of guilt or do the thing because they feel like there's a sense of commitment there. And that's inefficiency at best. I mean, not only are we wasting time, but it's not good energy because Will Smith actually coined this in a really good way. It's like, hang out with people that fuel your fire, not to pour it out. And this is the good fire now we're talking about. And that's such a great way to look at it. It's like, why would you spend time with the people that want to douse your fire when there's all these other people out there that could potentially flame your fire and make you the best version of yourself. But I think a lot of the journey to get to the point where you even recognize that that's the situation, I don't know if it can be avoided. Like even if you and I, 10 years ago when we were starting our business, listen to a podcast like this and be like, okay, avoid the phase where I feel guilty about things. Like it doesn't matter. You'd still do it. It's a rite of passage. But I think what's helpful in hearing from the past generations who have done the thing is at least you know it's part of the process and you know I'm in the right place. This is how people have felt before me. And also there's a point where this stops and it transitions to something else. Just knowing, having a picture of the journey, because it's certainly not to say that if you are in any of these phases that have happened before, that you're in the wrong place. It actually means you're in the right place and not to be discouraged. And that's why 
so many people fail at business and a lot of things is because they don't recognize that the journey is what it is. It's not like I'm going to go hire member dev and Ali, they're going to build my site and then bank, you know, like I don't need to do anything. That's not how it works. That's such a powerful point there at the end. You say recognizing the journey for what it is, because, and this goes into something maybe we talk about another time in terms of the four stages of consciousness, but there is accepting something and going with it and being with that. And then there's not accepting it, which is all the friction and all the resistance. So this is a philosophy that not only I've taken a lot of interest to as of late as an entrepreneur, but as a father and as a husband is that if I have my thoughts and my ideals and things I value, that doesn't mean that I need to push these onto my children or my wife, for example. In other words, they have their own path and journey, like you said. And for me to dictate that is a very different path than for me to facilitate that, right? And so what it comes down to, and this is something that we talk with some of our more mature seasoned clients who are really digging in for some of the answers is like this method of acceptance or letting things be because it opens up a whole different mindset, a whole different shift in how you look at your business, how you look at your life. Because like you said, when you throw away resistance, you throw away friction, the world becomes simpler and it becomes more graceful. It becomes more harmonious. And I think that that I can sense when we're having these conversations with people like you and some of our clients, it's a very different conversation than someone who's like, well, no, 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 no. This is how it's supposed to be. This is why we're hiring you. This is what you're supposed to do. You can see the dialogue there is so different. The best way to summarize this is I tell people now, especially with when we do occasionally do the larger, more custom complex projects, I go, even though we say this is going to launch in six months, it's going to launch when it's ready to launch. And the people who get that laugh, they're like, totally get it. The people who don't are like, no, 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 no. This needs to launch in March. I'm like, okay, well, let's see if it happens in March. We can see how that plays out. I'm going to add a slightly a variant perspective on it. You said something, when we let go of resistance, the world becomes simpler. The way that I see it is that when we let go of resistance, we stop trying to control complexity, which ultimately leads to our lives being more simple and more stress-free. But really, the world isn't changing. The world is what it is. Things are complex and chaotic, et cetera, et cetera. And if we go with the flow, that'll be an easier journey than if we resist it. And when we go with the flow, sometimes that means we don't end up where we want to end up. And so you're talking about being a father and in general, not pushing our ideals on other people. I mean, really in being ourselves, we can hundred percent be ourselves and take ownership of what we know is right for us and not, but in holding space for other people, whether we're creating a company and having customers or whether being parents and having children, what we can do is create a container and make sure that the thing is supported make sure that it is nourished, et cetera, et cetera. But how the things grow within the container is up to their own spirit. Just like if you have a garden, you plant the seed, you water it, you nourish it, but the plant grows according to its own thing. It's not something for us to control. And it's the same in business. I love that. And I actually have a garden. That's a place where I'm learning. It's so powerful. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, I love where this ended up. Yeah, this is how <laughs> and, it should uh, be. As To speak to yeah. what we just spoke to, this yeah. is where it went. And that's exactly where it should have went. Exactly. So as usual, appreciate you coming on. So 
where can people go to learn more about you? The best place to learn about me is thatwebdude.com. This is my personal blog. I'm intentional about writing once or twice a month. And a lot of what you're going to get there are more topics like you and I have just discussed at the latter part of this episode, things on fatherhood, things on psychology, relationships, even a little bit of business sprinkled in here and there. That'd be a good place if you just want to go catch some stuff. Please do leave a comment. I love people who engage in that conversation. And then businesswisemember.com. We spoke a lot about what we're doing there. My team and I are doing some awesome stuff there. So if you're anywhere remotely interested in launching, building, or growing a membership site, just touch base with us. We're happy to have a conversation. Yeah. And I'll add to that. If you are interested in, we've kind of referenced the simple platform that you developed through your experience over the years. We've referenced it a number of times in this conversation. If people are MemberMouse customers or thinking about using MemberMouse and they want to get up and running as quickly as possible and then face all the challenges we just talked about in this conversation, if you go to MemberMouse.com slash done-for-u, that'll talk about the partnership that my company and Ali's company have together to help you get the ball rolling as quickly as possible. So yeah, check that out. But Ali, thank you so much for your time and thanks for coming on. Likewise, man. It's always a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to this entire episode. I hope you learned a lot from Ali and now feel more confident about what you should do after you launch your site. I'm so grateful Ali came onto the show and would like to thank him for sharing so freely from his knowledge and experience. To get the links to the resources we mentioned in the episode, head on over to subscriptionentrepreneur.com slash 154. There you'll also find the complete show notes and a downloadable transcript of our conversation. If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more engaging interviews with successful entrepreneurs, experts, and authors, be sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or Stitcher. We have a growing library of engaging episodes with many more to come. Thanks for being here, and we'll see you next time.